Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, recessions. The world's been in one or is in the midst of one, and even if it is not officially in one right now, it's a bit meaningless not to call it a recession because of the size of the economy is so much smaller than it was. And we know for sure that Europe is in the midst of a double-dip recession. So we've had recessions before, but not like this massive economic downturn that we've got right now. So what's so different, apart from COVID-19, of course, and what have been the most common causes of recessions in the past? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Welcome along. Well, we know the uh, the 2008 financial crisis was brought about by the financial sector. God bless them. The uh, subprime mortgages from uh, the, the, the mortgage lenders, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, basically packing up, packaging up those dodgy loans as mortgage-backed securities in ways that hid the uh, the true risk involved in lending. But we're in a very different place now. And yet, GDP has fallen more than any time since the Second World War, but we're expecting a rapid recovery. And whilst government spending is at unprecedented levels, nobody seems too worried about it. So so does that mean, Steve, that we haven't got too much to worry about? I mean, this is a very different recession to previous recessions, isn't it? Because if we look at if we look back at what causes recessions, uh, you know, uh, which ones are the worst, do you think? Which, which ones leave the economy the most deeply scarred? Oh, it's always the ones that are involving credit uh, when you have a, a credit boom followed by a credit crunch. And that was, a, that was the classic story with 1929. It was the classic story with 2007 um, because in both cases you had uh, the in, huge levels of private debt compared to surrounding periods, but you then had uh, the growth in, in debt, which is credit, the annual change in debt. I, def- I define an accountants to find that as credit. I've got a dispute with some of my economist friends, and you can use the words interchangeably. Debt is what you owe. Credit is how much more you owe over a, a particular period of time. And if you look at the if you look at the uh, nine, the two thousand and seven, the rate of change of private debt hit in America, which I'll, I'll use as my benchmark all the time, hit fifteen percent of GDP. Now, that's the highest it's ever been in the history of American capitalism. Right. So and, you and right back what, to waiting. What yeah, happened yeah. then is that because there's that you know as it keeps on rising, banks have got to try and find new ways to perpetuate that, which is why we got the whole uh, repackaging up of, of dodgy loans because. You had to go after the dodgy loans because everybody else had already borrowed. Yeah, well, I mean, and this, that was that was all happening sort of between 2000 and 2005. And the level of household mm. that actually peaked in 2006 and the fact that it turned down despite all the encouragements that were out there was a bit of a sign of what was to come. But the basic story is you go from a high level of positive credit to a, to a high level of negative credit, and that's what gives you a financial crisis. So in, nine, in 2007, you went from credit being 15% of GDP on the positive side to minus 5 on the negative. 
And then no. you look back at the... Um, at because the, the growth uh, is slowing. So, huh? so in effect... It plunges, what, what, it goes positive to yeah. negative, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you've said this so many times, haven't you, that it's the... It's that speed of growth. It's that credit, yes, rather than uh, yeah. rather than debt in total, which is which is creating the problem. Because yeah. in effect, it's all new money being ploughed into the economy, and then all of a sudden, that new money stops. And in fact, it goes in reverse. But mm. uh, this time, to, to get that situation, you, you normally have a credit bust. You've normally got to have a credit boom beforehand, and we had that in spades in two thousand and seven. We had it in spades back in nineteen twenty nine. But this time round, there was no real credit boom going on. There was positive credit, so debt was rising, but not much faster than GDP. Um, and consequently, there was there was not this um, huge. We haven't climbed a huge cliff. So when you jump off this particular cliff we're on, you're not going to be you, – you, it's like you're like you're in the ground and you're jumping into the hole rather than being on a cliff above the ground and you jump into the same hole. So we, we can have negative credit this time round. I say could. We won't necessarily will have it, but we, we could have it. But it won't be preceded by massively positive credit. So the shift – the downturn won't be as severe because you haven't climbed as as high before it started. I mean, sometimes people say it's really been the banks that are to blame for all of this. It was bad management practices by the banks that, you know, governments had eased up on restrictions for banks too much so they could lend too much. You know, the loan-to-value ratios that the banks are prepared to offer were, were eased off. I mean, is there any argument in that or is it just the appetite for credit which had driven us to those boom times that uh, that obviously have the, the the consequences you talked about oh it's definitely the banks i mean the banks definitely deserve the blame for this because um they just got caught in a lending frenzy and i mean one of our um, uh, his supporters and regular listeners uh, richard vague has plenty of information on that having been in banking and deciding to get out uh, in I think in 2005 because he could see what was coming and um, and and it was this huge increase in, in in bank debt and they were basically you know you lend to anybody with a pulse when a euphoric period is going on and that was certainly the case between or oh, the 90 it goes right back to 1996 96 to 2006 with a, a bit of a blip in 2000 2001 it was just a non-stop uh, uh, credit um, uh, orgy, and, uh, and and that's what got Richard to get out. He saw the amount of money yeah. being borrowed. So the warning signs are going to be the uh, the amount of people in the marketing departments of banks, presumably. The more people they're taking on in marketing, the more they're trying to issue loans to people, uh, the worse it's going to get. To some extent. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, you can certainly <laughs> you get plenty of indicators. I mean, there are things like the, uh, the Americans keep uh, tabs on the uh, willingness to lend of loan officers in banks, and that's always... A, uh, a reasonable expose of what's going to come your way next, but um, with the with the um, uh, 2000 2007 period, you had the state getting in there as well. So you had uh, one of one of my uh, another good colleagues in the finance sector, Doug Holland, was a complete critic of Fannie Mae, which is typical American. Uh, you know, you're making up a, a nice personable name for a government institution, the, the federal mortgage assurance organization, whatever it was called. And they were just buying all the loans that were being created by these you know, first tier lenders with third tier products. Um, and that and that just kept the whole bubble going. So you had everything, you know, throwing credit on the on the fire to cause the, the boom in 2007, which was up till 2007, which, of course, bust in 2007 went from massively positive to massively negative. So that's 
very much a, um, a bank-driven process. Uh, there was another thing that happened in those years as well. Manufacturing numbers uh, started to fall, and we've seen that ahead of quite a few recessions. There's no reason why, if you've got more, uh, particularly household debt, that would be reflected in, in manufacturing. And yet it's almost as though the manufacturing sector knew the recession was on the way. How come, do you reckon? Oh, actually, that's, that's intriguing. Have you got any data on that that you can quote over the, over the radio? Yeah. Give me that first yeah, so, I mean, I'm looking at the PMIs, actually. That's a, they're the numbers. Okay, the yeah, yeah. Managing yeah. Index, uh, which uh, shows that in 2008, I mean, it was, okay, this was, it was, 2008 is hard to tell because it was uh, it was at 50 and it was going down to 45. Anything below 50, of course, means that uh, purchasing managers are subtraction. It's subtraction. So it was going. It looks mm. like it was going down into subtraction just before then. But if we look at uh, if we look at you know the last few years before COVID, uh, so from 2018 onwards, I guess we were. I mean, th- we we were looking. There was a lot of recession talk around, wasn't it? So it went from 55, it was below 50. It was already in retraction territory before we hit the pandemic. Uh, and I, mm. you know, I can't go back any any further on the the data that uh, that I've got to hand. But I'm hearing, you know, uh, I've been reading, you know, the, just an observation that before recessions, very often we see uh, as a precursor, we sort of see a, a slide in manufacturing. I'm just wondering if you've got a theory as to why that might be. Well, I just say, well, well, normally because there are lags involved in this sort of stuff. So, like when you look at the level of of household debt, for example, which was obviously driving the mortgage market, that didn't peak in 2007. It peaked in 2006. So what you had was the household sector was already turning down before um, it, it hit the aggregate economy, and that's partially because households, had, despite the you know the attractions of all the you know subprime loans that were out there and so on, they were actually slowing down the rate of borrowing, or you had people going bankrupt who couldn't. F- hang on long enough to end up flipping the house into a rising market. So the fall in house prices and the fall in household new new household credit uh, occurred before the downturn overall. And it might be the business sector has sort of, you know, is projecting forward the rate of growth you're seeing in the um, household sector to begin with. So they're borrowing like crazy to finance what they're doing, both in terms of speculation and investment. Uh, but they... They're blindsided by the fact the household sector slows more rapidly than they expect. So you've got uh, the, the business sector is borrowing to keep on financing expanding output, while the household sector has stopped um, its its level of borrowing and is now cutting back on expenditure. And you therefore get this falling demand line in manufacturing sales yeah. before the actual. Crisis begins. It makes a great deal of sense. So, does it always? If you look back at all of these recessions, and we will start talking about the one that we're, you know, that we're in with COVID. But I mean, before now, are they almost always related to? If you look at the very heart of it, is uh, a loans for housing front and centre of it all? It's one of the major ones, and without a doubt. I mean, again, quoting quoting Rich's work on this, even the Great Depression uh, or the boom of the nineteen twenties led to the bubble uh, that then led to the crash of the nineteen thirties. That was driven by a housing bubble, and that. It's disappeared from the data, but Richard got his own research team in debt economics to go backwards and actually look even at newspaper records. And they found, yes, there was a, a big housing bubble, I think went from about 1920 to 23. And that set off the whole um, financial excess that ended up with the stock market bubble bursting in 1929. So it is commonly the case that a, that a household bubble is as part of the overall process. But even having said that, the business that is much more volatile and much more cyclical. And you can see businesses reacting to what's happening to one of their major customer groups, which is the the household sector, and occasionally uh, going too far when there's a when there's a boom in the um, 
in the household sector than the the business sector jumps on shortly afterwards. So if you go back to, let's say, I'll, I'll go, I'll give a few little dates here going way, way back. If you go right back to the end of the Second World War, um, corporate debt was 20, 23% of GDP and household debt was 10% of GDP. So trivial levels. Fast forward to the uh, financial crisis in 2008 and household debt peaked at 98% of GDP and business debt kept on rising. And this is why I'm making the point about the, the time lags between the two. Business debt kept on rising even though household debt was falling. So you had a period from uh, it had been, um, the level of, um, of household debt peaked in February of uh, 2008 at uh, 98% of GDP, or almost 99%, but business debt kept on rising. It was down It was down at about 70% and it kept on going to 72% uh, when you'd already had the housing sector. It was well and truly in reverse. Right. And they both went into reverse. Yeah. And that, that's that's what made the crisis so steep. Yeah, so they um, so invested in growth that didn't eventuate. So they've uh, so they're left with the right. excess yeah. capacity, but they've still got to pay the loan on it. That's right. So, the, the, and then, and that would have come up. That just ended up in your PMI numbers as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that makes a great deal of sense. The difference this time around, of course, and I'm hearing that there's actually not, you know, a lot of businesses haven't actually acquired that much debt. I mean, there's been grants, there's been furloughing schemes, uh, and early on, large businesses took on quite a lot of debt, but then not since. And in fact, you know, a lot of the large businesses actually have paid that debt back. So, the, so the accumulated debt. Uh, it's not so great. I guess that, you know, for the same reason. That no. Are, all, <laughs> I, I, you, think, you think that's not the case? Well, I'm going to actually looking at data. You know me. I was always Numbers. You're going, to, you're going to hit me with facts now. Good oh, Lord. Sorry about that, mate. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll change professions. Hmm. Um, <laughs> become a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's just actually do this now. It's going to take a look at the – because you might be looking at your – UK data. Well, I'm, so I'm, I'm basing it on hearsay where I've had so many people saying now, actually, the amount of debt that large businesses in particular have acquired isn't that great during this pandemic. And then that's got to be a good sign that they will be able to pick up and recover because they're not they're not going to be, uh, you know, they're not going to be held back in it. That that might be true of the UK to some extent. It's not true of America. So if we look at the U, looking at the uh, the UK, if you go back to the beginning of 2020, uh, the level of corporate debt was 71 percent of GDP. And it is now 79% of GDP. Oh, okay. So that's, it has leapt up that's a That's a huge bit. increase in yeah. just – and that's over, that's over nine GDP's months. GDP's fallen a bit, though. Uh, if you go to America, mm. the change in corporate debt is from uh, before the crisis began, 76% of GDP, uh, 83%. Okay. Right, and that's just There's to get a big okay, increase in corporate okay. So debt. I'm going to turn, turn, turn my point around completely then, because <laughs> that, because that, I mean, that's a bad sign, isn't it? Because that is just muddling through. That is not building for growth. Because no one would yeah, be borrowing right now to to build up until they had a, an idea of the time scale. Uh, yeah. So that that's so so growth could be very slow out of this because of that, couldn't it? They, they, that, that's, what, gonna, that's what worries me. I mean, that was, uh, you, know, you, you would probably know this. Uh, you might even use it as part of the a part of the podcast. You know, the old Australian song, a pub with no beer yeah yeah so is it slim dusty yeah <laughs> it's never something things so mournful and drear as to stand at the bar in a pub with no beer well this to me is going to be the boom with no the slump with no boom 
Yeah. Because normally you get a boom before a, a credit crunch. Uh, this may well not be a credit crunch, credit going negative after this period of, of positive borrowing just for the sake of covering a cash flow. That's what, you know, obviously corporations aren't borrowing to expand and invest right now. They're borrowing because the cash coming in uh, is less than their financial commitment. So they're, they're running up overdrafts, they're running up lines of credit uh, to, stay, to stay solvent uh, while getting more in debt at the same time. So um, that's my worry that we I mean, it's not guaranteed. And yeah, yeah, the forecasts the- are, you know, from all gust mm-hmm. bodies like the IMF, for example, you know, that we're going to see a, a, a big increase. I mean, the, the, the problem we've, we've got, of course, is that it's a double whammy, isn't it, this time around? Because, you know, GDP, we've had a big hit on GDP, obviously, more than any time since the Second World War. And it's part of that is because uh, it is because uh, demand has fallen because people can't get out and supply has fallen because people can't go to work. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's very rare you get a double hit like that. It's normally one or the other. Yeah, that's right. And this is a, you know, a totally unique uh, experience, at least in the history of capitalism thus far. I mean, to me, of course, it's a precursor of what we're going to see massively out of out of climate change. And that's, um, you know, in, in the in the long run, nothing is exogenous. Mm. Um, um, so we are finding ourselves, you know, causing things like the coronavirus to come back and bite us. But in terms of the historical record, this is the first time it's happened. So normally, like what a lot of economists will do if they get something like the Great Depression, they'll leave that out as an outlier. Oh, dear, that's more than five standard deviations outside my data set. Therefore, it must be an outlier. I will ignore that data and fit my model to the other bits and pieces (laughs) of the data. Well, thanks a lot, mate. This is a big one and a bit too recent for people in our lifetime to ignore those, I think. The other thing that happens, of course, is that, uh, which we're not seeing this time, uh, is that inverted yield curve, you know, the the spread between two and 10-year treasury bonds in previous mm. recessions, in fact, it's been used, hasn't it, as a good indicator of recessions if, if it goes negative. So the yield on long-term bonds falls below those on short-term bonds. So that's a reflection of how investors see the long-term. And if they don't think it's so good, then the, the, the yield curve goes negative. Mm. We're a long way from that now. We, you know, we've we've been throughout the pandemic. It's actually been the, the other way around. So I guess there's, a, there's another recession indicator that we can throw in the bin. Yeah, and I, I'm still not saying there will be necessarily be a recession on the other side because there's yeah. so much government spending going in uh, at the moment um, it, and, the, and households may well redirect a lot of their spending uh, so that parts of the economy which have suffered uh, may have a boom on the other side. It's... Uh, you know, like obviously tourism is going to suffer and suffer very badly. Uh, but spending, you know, there may be some redirection of spending that keeps other sectors alive while that one suffers in particular. So, yeah. well, that's it, the hope, isn't it? I mean, that's why that that is and just your comment on those GDP numbers, which are, you know, very high, you know, like 5% or so for the UK, for example, for, for 2021. It's what the, the IMF is is forecasting, uh, you know, similar numbers, in fact, more for, for the United States and a little less for Europe. A lot of it's based on vaccine rollouts and uh, how quickly they're happening. Uh, but, you know, there's this, this expectation, isn't it, that there's a section of the community, exactly as you're saying, that are going uh, are going to spend. And, OK, it may not be in some sectors, but they, it'll, it'll get spread to other sectors. And, yeah. you know, lots of people saying, well, we're going to go through the Roaring Twenties again for exactly the same reasons. We're out of a, out of a war. Well, this time we're out of a pandemic. Well, last time we were out of a pandemic as well, of course. And, uh, we, we, you know, that deferred spending uh, is going to happen. Uh, the government's going to spend. We get big construction projects, particularly in the United States. And a, a decade of rapid economic growth. You know, so the Roaring Twenties could, I mean, we, we know what happens next, of course. <laughs> do, well, the do, trouble is, is what, that possible? What happened, 
Well, no, no, because what happens next has already happened back in 2007. We've had a private debt bubble and crash. Hmm. And because we haven't got rid of the overhang of private debt, we're not, we're not likely to see the level of credit-driven demand that we saw back in the, in the Great Depression. I mean, the thing which is quite fascinating to me, and uh, this is something I've been looking at um, because I know how much margin debt, for example, drives share prices. We know how big the, uh, the share market bubble is in America right now at the valuation for the, uh, uh, the the American stock market using Robert Schiller's uh, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. It's now at the third, fourth highest level it's ever been, the stock market valuation, um, fourth highest in, in the history of the index. Uh, the third highest was actually uh, back, back in um, 2018. So we've we're getting back to the stage where the market is as overvalued as it was back then. The only period that beats um, that actually, it's, the only period that beats 2018 for stock market valuation is 2000. Um, even 2007 has a lower level of overvaluation um, than we had uh, than we have at the moment. So the the, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio that uh, you know is. Um, Mm. Robert, one of Robert Shaw's creations was 29 in 2007. Uh, it is now uh, 36. But I mean, and that's the, looking, if the that's looking, but if that's looking at it, right, okay, but if that's looking at earnings right now during a pandemic, so it would be, I mean, it would be safer to have a look at what what the earnings were just before the pandemic and what the expectation no, is that, that they will come back to. That's the beauty of this particular index. It's using earnings for the previous 10 years. All right, okay, okay. cool. So the, the the the, uh, the beauty of the of that index is that it leaves out those ludicrous periods of you know massive overvaluations for some some indices and and undervaluations for others. So the even with these huge periods of boom and bust, if you look at the data, ever since nineteen eighty three, the stock market has been on the tear compared to its historical average. But the historical average is twenty point five. As I said at the moment, we're running at thirty six. Yeah. So I mean, could so, that be? Cause so could we see then that there is a, a stock market crash, like we like we saw in the in the? Yeah, well, in, I mean, because we shifted the, from we've had the housing price crash. Everyone's gone. Okay, we won't put as much money into property. Let's put it in the stock market. That's a bit safer. Mm. Uh, and then we uh, then the same thing happens there. Well, the trouble is here we we have an actor we've never had before on the scale that it's involved now in the stock market, and that's the Federal Reserve and mm. central banks around the world with quantitative easing. Uh, that that's a, a roundabout way of driving share prices higher. Yeah. And every time, you know, they, they, when, when it was first instituted back in, what, about 2010 or thereabouts, I called it a pact with the devil. You know, once you've signed up, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't decide to revise the contract. Tough, tough luck. So every, every time I've tried to get out of QE, they've got back into QE again when the stock market starts to fall. And I, I really wonder about the people in the, the Federal Reserve, are they looking at long-term indicators like, uh, the, the, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, the CAPE index, are they looking at this and seeing what they've done to the valuation level? Because as I've said, the, the long-term average is 20 and the current level is 36. Um, when you go back to uh, the 2000 bubble, which is the highest level of valuation history, that was 48. Now, mm. it, it, what, why do they think it has to keep on rising? And it really in, in, in QE, we, we look at the impact of QE, the market... Uh, uh, fell down to as low as 15, which which was the, the pre-bubble average to some extent. So it's gone from 15 to 36, more than doubled uh, well, during the period of QE. 
Why do they um, do it? Why do they do it without any concern for the for the underlying value? It's be, because everybody wins. They keep on saying this, don't they? That uh, with, yeah, and they, they say it with a straight face that you know if uh, if the stock market goes higher, uh, then your pension fund goes higher. Uh, and uh, okay, proportionally the rich get much 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 richer for a while, uh, but that doesn't seem to matter too much, does it? That, I mean that that's no. the, that's the that's the depth of their argument, isn't it? If it goes up, then everyone gets richer. Fundamentally, and and uh, you know, there's, uh, as you know, it's what I call for to call trick le down economics. Yeah, and it's done a pretty good job of tricking le down for quite some time, but it's also tricking le up because if you take a look at the level of margin debt, we are now back to uh, a level of margin debt which has not been seen since 1930 uh, as, as a percentage of GDP. So margin debt is now three point. Uh, so check it out properly. Uh, 3.4% of GDP. The previous peak uh, was back in 2018 at 3.4%. Uh, before that, we got um, the peak level of 3% in 2000. So we've got more margin debt now than we had back in 2000. And the only one I want to leave it standing is the level during the Great Depression, which was adjusting so that today's data's history's data is consistent with today's valuations. 13% of GDP. Mm. So we're not, we're not as speculative as the madness of the 1920s, but there's a huge amount of speculation in there. And therefore, you've now got this, this even, even more strongly amplifies the power of the Federal Reserve's buying program, which is keeping those ratios up and dragging people in. Uh, now, if, if the market starts to fall, there'll be immense pressure on the, on the Federal Reserve to revive the market. So what we have is the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world in general that are dedicated to causing asset price inflation. So how would they supposed- revive the market? I mean, uh, what huh? can what can they do other than say, well, okay, QE? If you do more Q- QE, I mean, I've learned a, a lot about modelling by money by modelling by building Minsky, as you know. And when you when you put this together in double entry bookkeeping terms and say what is going on with QE, it's the Federal Reserve. Uh, when they were doing it at the tune of a, a trillion dollars worth a year or 80 billion a month, which is roughly a trillion US dollars a year, they were saying they were going to be on the buy side in bond sales with the banks at the tune of a trillion dollars a year. Now, if that's happening, then what that means is the reserves of the banks are going up, the bond holdings are going down. Reserves don't earn in- income, bonds do. So that is encouraging the banks to use that money, the whole financial system to use that money to buy other assets. And this is exactly what Bernanke said it was supposed to cause them to do, to cause a wealth effect. And, of course, when they buy shares, the sharehold, the, the, the brokers they buy the shares through, the people they sell buy the shares off, put their money back in a bank again so the level of reserves don't fall. But you're getting effectively a trillion dollars a year of additional buying pressure on the stock market. Right. And the way to solve that is to buy more of it. Uh, yeah, and and that's just driving the valuations higher and higher. So this yeah, yeah. is why I call it a pack with the devil. They've signed up for something I can't stop doing. So the um, the stock market crash in the uh, in the Great Depression, um, you know, it ended the Roaring Twenties. In we saw shares fall. Well, uh, the Dow went from three hundred and fifty to two hundred in a month. So and it, take away the peaks and troughs around that time, it basically went from three hundred to two hundred. So so it lost a third. Uh, and that obviously resulted in massive 
job losses and we saw the Great Depression. I'm just wondering, if you look now, the stock market since the MSCI World Index, so globally, it's, it's even more pronounced in the United States, of course, but globally, shares since January 2020 have gone up 23%. So we're well on our way sort of like to a third. You could almost go, well, okay, well, if we lost a third right now, it would almost be taking us back to, you know, just a little bit below where we were before the pandemic started no great shakes. Would we actually see the massive job losses that we saw during the Great well, Depression? I know I'm sort of oversimplifying yeah. it, but if you look at a graph, you'll go, oh, it's going to take us back to where we were. That's not so bad, is it? Yeah. I mean, the the, the, the reason that it's not as quite as drastic as back in 1929 is the, is the level of margin debt is both lower now than it was then. It's one quarter now what it was at the peak in the Great Depression. That's partly the fact that when you're just looking at the scale, the margin debt, the, the impact of getting a margin call in terms of the impact on GDP, was four times higher in 1929 than it is now. However, the other thing is that back in the 1920s, the level of margin debt was 10%. So if you put down $100,000, uh, you could take um, you, 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 with, you could get a brokerage loan of 900000 and buy a million dollars worth of shares. And therefore, a 10% fall on the market would wipe you out completely because as part of the margin call, you're required to maintain the valuation of the portfolio. So if it falls by 10% uh, from a, a 1 million to 900,000, uh, then your equity is wiped out. But now the level of margin debt after the Great Depression, one of the few reforms we've stuck with is that margin debt is now limited to 50%. So to buy that million dollars worth, you've got to buy, uh, you've got to put in $500,000. And therefore, uh, the impact of a decline you have to have much larger decline to wipe out the equity entirely. So it, it doesn't have quite the same negative impact that it had back in the 1920s. But you will still have people getting margin calls and being sent bankrupt by, you know, a 10 or 20% fall on the stock market, which would be quite feasible given the extent to which it's been pumped up by QE uh, during the pandemic. So how we go for the next, and look, we're going to talk more about how we get out of the pandemic next time, but just uh, but just touching on it. Um if we've got businesses with steeped in debt but wanting to grow, then they would have to go deeper into debt. But also, you know, you're hoping that their spending is up because more people are, you know, out to enjoy life. And you've got to assume that there'll be a little bit of enthusiasm for em- mm. embracing uh, getting out and spending money. Um, so that's going to help pay off some of that debt at the same time. So it's going to be a growth path, isn't it? It just might not be as fast as people like the uh, IMF are expecting, for example. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's that's what I'm expecting. I think there, there could be a credit crunch coming out of this because a lot of corporations are now carrying more debt. They've got to service out of effectively the same cash flow if we get back to pre-COVID levels of economic activity. Uh, so that that's a potential worry. And corporations, their first interest, given the extent to which corporate debt has risen during the pandemic, may be to repair their balance sheets first rather than go out to investment. And that itself could cause a negative from the business sector. The arguments about the household sector having done a huge amount of saving and therefore having more money to spend in the future uh, is all based on national accounting, where you have here's the level of output, you know, why the term, the, the symbol that economists use for it, GDP, the a gross domestic product, that hasn't fallen as much as consumption has. So the gap between the two is called savings, and it's just an accounting identity at the national accounts level. But that definition of consumption doesn't include servicing your debts. So the money you, you need to pay your interest bill on the bank loan, uh, if you, the money you might use to pay your debt level down, 
does not turn up as part of the consumption figures. And therefore, what you see as saving can actually be people's getting deeper and deeper into debt uh, because they, they can't afford to pay the interest bill and they can't afford to pay the debt level down. So I, I don't believe there's a level of savings that people think the household sector go out there and spend, spend, spend. But it is not likely that the mood will be, let's get out there and party, uh, which was certainly a large part of the mentality back after the um, the Spanish flu. But we might be, let's get out and party on the cheap because uh, it's unlikely wages will have increased significantly. I mean, inflation's going nowhere, is it? So, uh, and I, I suspect, you know, companies that have furloughed workers, many of them were saying, well, you were getting 80% of your salary. That was enough, wasn't it? Uh, let's, mm. <laughs> let's, let's carry on with that. Or companies saying, can you work four days a week rather than five days a week? And there's there's going to be this, um, you know, because companies have got so much debt, they are going to be trying to keep their wages built down as much as possible. So that's going to, that's going to impact consumption. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, it, it, it's certainly, it's an, it's, it, if you wanted to choose an uncertain time in human history, this is a pretty good choice uh, because at mm. least when I was back in 2008, I could say there's going to be a crisis. There's going to be a crisis. The odds, you know, zero odds of avoiding one. Australia managed to make it less than zero by uh, restarting its housing bubble but and, and ditto Canada. But most countries around the world were, you know, on a hiding to nothing to have a financial crisis. This time round, um I, th- I think there will be a credit crunch potentially, um, but you've also got uh, authorities that are much more attuned to the dangers of this now than they were back in 2008. So I don't expect a, a huge hit. I think what's more likely to be a worry is what's going to come out of the climate and out of. Mm. Uh, I, I think we, we, we're counting our pandemic chickens before the viruses, the vaccines have hatched, I think. So <laughs> we might be, you know, exaggerating the odds of getting out of this. Yeah. So uh, one person nobody's going to be reading too much of is Milton Friedman, isn't it? I mean, all this government spending. I mean, in, you know, if you'd look back in the 1970s, we had this level of spending. Everyone would be going, we are setting ourselves up for a fall by having the government spending so much. And that would chip away at confidence and that would almost certainly cause a recession. But that that is not the route we're going to take this time, is it? It's, it's, it's been accepted. Well, it wasn't the route we took back then anyway. But it, 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 it's, it's, some, some people are arguing that. I'm reading a guy's book right now because I'm involved in a debate with uh, over a debt jubilee tomorrow. Um, I'm actually going to put a note about that on, on Patreon uh, in case people want to listen in. But um, uh, there are plenty of people saying, oh, there's been so much government spending. What you watch, there's going to be huge inflation. Mm. Of course, most of the government spending has been making up for a collapse in private spending. And then a huge part of the credit uh, the credit creation people are seeing uh, or the, the money they're, they're looking at is actually the, the central banks buying bonds off the private sector again, which does not create money. So um, I, I think there's an exaggerated fear of inflation caused by that. What would worry me more likely, and I think this is going to happen over the next decade, is inflation and food prices at some point, because we're going to start seeing climate hits in the next, uh, I think the next decade. I'm fairly, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a climate scientist, obviously, but what I'm looking at, I think, oh, it's going to happen this decade or next. If it happens this decade and we start seeing food shortages coming out of it, then we can have massive inflation on the food end of the a consumption spectrum, but a collapse in other prices uh, where people, you know, less money to spend on television sets, you end up buying food instead. Um, so you, your overall CPI might still be going down, but part of it will be going up. Uh, yeah, and in fact, on that, Bloomberg's been uh, reporting this week uh, rising uh, crop prices in the United States because there's uh, big demand for food from China because of concerns of, uh, of, of the drought. 
uh, and uh, and and also the cost of uh, you know of, of picking crops is is increasing uh, as well. So uh, yeah, and we're already starting to see that. We're already starting to see a bit of inflation being driven through from food prices. Yeah, so it, it's a it, it's a, it's an uncertain time in human history, and uh, the only certainty mm. I can see is climate change is going to come and bite us big big time. The question is how right. this manifests, uh, and and the timing is when it starts. But you know, in that sense, 2020, rather than being this terrible year, we can all look back on and say, thank God, we've now got 2020 in hindsight. Uh, you know, that may have just been the hors d'oeuvres for the next decade. We can say that's when it all began. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's, we're going to talk more about how we get out of this uh, next week. Uh, so sort of following on from, to, mm. from today's discussion, I guess. But it seems to be what you're saying is that we, you don't know. What the next uh, what the next year is going to bring? Almost certainly, we're not seeing, going to see the sorts of growth that are, that are being bandied about. Because, as you're saying, the amount we, we might be surprised about the amount of money that's really not sitting in mm. uh, in people's bank accounts ready to be spent. And and also, we've got the concerns from business about uh, leveraging even further than they are currently. The government could do a bit about that, though, couldn't they? Just as they've tried to stimulate the household spending, they could do the same by trying to stimulate uh, business spending, couldn't they? I mean, for example, more grants rather than loans. Yeah, I mean, the government, this is what we're learning from the debate of a modern monetary theory, that people, that the government is not constrained by uh, having to borrow money from anybody else. It, it creates money when it runs a deficit. So if that starts yeah. to sink in, then, and like the deficit itself turns up as a large part of the profits of corporations. Uh, that's what's called the Kolesky profit equation. Um, so it's it's quite feasible that uh, the government could try to, to do that to keep corporations afloat as well they might need to in the next decade or two as climate change starts to bite. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, we'll uh, look at this more next week. We'll see if there is a route out of it, what you'd suggest. I think we might have just touched on it. Uh, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks, Steve. Okay, mate. And that's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve again next week for another one. See you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.